Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Good evening, children of the night. In our corner of the literary world, there is one name that is larger than most, Stephen King. The author's fans are legion. Sure, he has some detractors that claim that his work is overrated, but no one is universally liked. There are a few other authors that I can think of that have had so much of their work translated into television and feature-length films than Stephen King. Now, there is a good area to have some disagreements because some of those translations to the big and small screen didn't go so well, in my opinion. Recently, I rewatched The Shawshank Redemption, which I think I've seen a hundred times, as when I was a teenager, I think that TBS defaulted to that movie if they didn't have any other programming. It's a very enjoyable film. I've sang the praises of the movie version of The Mist. Conversely, the TV show of the same name has the distinction of being one of the few TV shows that I quit watching less than half of the way through the first episode. Last year's movie, The Dark Tower, featuring Idris Elba doing a great job as Roland Deschain and Matthew McConaughey as a Walter Paddock that was better than my imagination made him while reading the books, which didn't save the movie for being, at best, a terrific fanfic movie. And then the slightly more recent movie, It, which I've sang the praises of. Now... Hulu has the series Castle Rock. I'm only a single episode into it, 
but I'm thinking that this is definitely going to be worth my time. I've been thinking of how to articulate a particularly characteristic of horror storytelling that I think included in Castle Rock. It's as if the audience is made aware that something is very wrong, but it's not oversold. Something weird and very bad is happening, or has happened, but we don't need over-reminders of that constantly. High weirdness done with a casual or unforced effort, perhaps. But there has been some positive buzz about the show already that I won't repeat here. Sissy Spacek and Bill Skarsgård are terrific members of the cast, but I don't think Scott Glenn gets enough credit. He plays a grizzled, drunken asshole better than anyone, and I did like to see Terry O'Quinn's brief amount of screen time in the first episode. He played John Locke on Lost, which I think was my favorite character. But maybe he'll still be on the show, because, as you know, sometimes they come back. I'll give you some thoughts on the show once I get through it. Time permitting, that might be sooner, or it might be later. But it's off to a good start. Let's get to our stories. William Fryer Harvey was born into a wealthy Quaker family in Yorkshire in 1885. Known as W.F. Harvey, he was an English writer of short stories, most notably in the macabre and horror genres. Harvey released three collections of short stories during his life, and he died in 1937 at the age of 52. The release of the film The Beast with Five Fingers in 1946, directed by Robert Florey and starring Peter Lorre, inspired by what was perhaps his most famous and praised short story, caused a resurgence of interest in Harvey's work. In 1951, a posthumous fourth collection of his stories the arm of Mrs. Egan and other stories appeared, including a set of twelve stories left in manuscript at the time of his death, titled Twelve Strange Cases. And now, William Fryer Harvey's classic, August Heat. Fenestone Road, Clapham, August 20th. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life, and while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. Let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I am forty years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one, but I earn enough money by my black-and-white work to satisfy my wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that I am independent. I breakfasted this morning at nine, and after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander, in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot, and I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath. When the idea came, I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched, only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude's struck four. The final result, for a hurried sketch, was, I felt, sure, the best thing I had done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat. The flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It creased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven, perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven, and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch, and without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. 
Then with the rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Linton Street and turning to the right along Gilchrist Road at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines. For there, onwards, I had only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The one thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-colored clouds that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth, where there were flowers, purple stock, and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, Chaz Atkinson, Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me, smiling, as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologized for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it is certainly hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way, it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish, but there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never make really a good job of a bit of marble like that. It would be all right in the summer like this, but wouldn't mind the blasted heat. But wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. And what's it for? I asked. The man burst out laughing. You'd hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition. But it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and butchers. We have them too. All the latest little things and headstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain and which were easiest to work, then of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute, he would drop his tools, wipe his shining head, and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny, in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory, but I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. There, what do you think of that? he said, with an air of evident pride. The inscription which I read for the first time was this, Sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft, born January 18, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20th. In the midst of life, we are in death. For some time I sat in silence, and a cold shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where had he seen that name. Oh, I didn't see it anywhere, replied Mr. Atkinson. I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came into my head. Why do you want to know? It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. He gave a long, low whistle. And the dates? I can only answer for one of them and that's correct. That's a rum go, he said. But he knew less than I did. I told him of my morning's work. I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him. As he looked, 
The expression of his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man I had drawn. And it was only the day before yesterday, he said, that I told Maria there were no such things as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. You probably heard my name, I said, and you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it. Were you at Clacton-on-Sea last July? I had never been to Clacton in my life. We were silent for some time. We were both looking at the same thing, the two dates on the gravestone, and one was right. Come inside and have some supper, said Mr. Atkinson. His wife is a cheerful little woman, with the flaky red cheeks of the country bread. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist. The result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she brought out a dory Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we had left off. You must excuse my asking, I said, but do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial? He shook his head. I'm not bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Three years ago I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas. But that's all I can think of, and they were small ones too, he added as an afterthought. He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day, regular in hot weather, he said. And the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And ferns, good lord, they could never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back home. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. The cart may run over you, and there's always banana skins and orange peel to say nothing of fallen ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till twelve o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting now, in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools at a little oil stone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I am writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handyman with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on his chisel. It is after eleven now. I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. It is enough to send a man mad. That was William Fryer Harvey's August Heat, as read by me. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes. Our second story for the night. Horror, thriller, sci-fi, all are synonymous with M.F. Wall. Her keen focus on character development and dark, twisting plots will keep you chained to each frightful word. Wall is a multi-published author and proud member of the Horror Writers Association. Her novel, Disease, was a number one Wattpad featured book in horror, and she will be published by Stitched Smile Publications in late 2017. She is also the winner of the 2017AuthorShow.com Top Female Author Award for her short story, Purple Haze. Wall moved to Canada from the States in 2001 and has been there long enough now to accept such a foreign land as her own despite some long-lasting culture shock. And as a reminder, we heard from M.F. Wallway back in episode 139 with the story Disease. Children of the night, lend me your ears. For M.F. Wall's Purple Haze, originally self-published March 1st, 2017.
Adira sucked back on her cigarette, her first in nearly two years. Jack Hatters had been her favorite, but beggars couldn't be choosers, and she had bummed it from a colleague with an insistent, hacking cough. He was dead now. Almost everyone was. Only she and two others had survived the crash. Long, curling fingers of poisonous smoke caressed her lungs with the promise of an abusive lover. The cigarette didn't make her feel any better, but right now she needed it. Right now, more than any time in her life, she needed a crutch to help her stand. Adam approached. The brief wrinkle of his nose and the slit of his eyes on his weathered face told her he disapproved, but she was the captain and he said nothing. He straightened the bleached lapels of his lab coat and swung his body down into the bucket seat in front of several computer LCDs. Adira stubbed out the counterfeit Marlboro on the bottom of her boot. It tasted terrible anyway. She cleared her throat and rolled up the sleeves of her flight suit, then nodded at Adam. With a deep breath and a moment of hesitation, he tapped on the keyboard, shunting away the screensaver and bringing up rows of color-coded bars, each fluctuating slightly. God, Adira hated this archaic system, but she knew it had probably saved their lives as they crash-landed on Ningal, which was the entire point. Everyone back home operated on nanotech, but out here... They had no connection to the hive. That meant nanites were practically useless. Anyway, the stasis chambers fried the little buggers, and having hardware that could easily be fixed with a solder gun and a screwdriver came in handy during times like this. It works! Adira clapped Adam on the back, smiling. Adam rubbed his face. His unchanging glower and his crew cut combined to make him look more like a drill sergeant than the acclaimed scientist he was. Yeah, he said, but take a look at this. He pointed at the screen with a blood-stained fingernail. Adira leaned in closer to the screen. A red bar flashed angrily at her from the display. The oxygen generator is toast, she said, crossing her arms. Yep. Adam replied, continuing to stare grimly at the screen. And so are all of our backup supplies. Yep, we're in a heap of trouble. She had expected as much and scratched absently at her arm as she thought. The ship was a total mess. Parts were completely broken off and scattered for miles around. Several huge gashes in the hull had already exposed them to the planet's atmosphere, and it looked like, at least for the time being, that was unlikely to change. Well, we're not dead yet, she said. Perhaps we should consider stasis until help arrives. And lose another ten years? To avoid further damaging the environment here. The damage is already done. There's no way the crash avoided seeding this place. If we go into stasis, we'll miss our one and only window to study this planet. I mean, really study it. Adam sat back in his chair, conceding to her. They both knew that in ten years it was possible for the bacteria that were part of a daily human life to take over. While in orbit, preliminary tests had been unable to turn up any life, not even a single microbe. With the exception of the indigo-blue grass that nearly covered the planet's entire surface, the environment seemed to be sterile. But just because they hadn't seen other life yet didn't mean it wasn't there. What about us? Adam asked. Did you say goodbye to everything you've ever known so you could get here and piss your pants at the thought of alien bacteria boogeymen? Adam reluctantly shook his head. She knew he wasn't the type to back down. None of them were. Hell, they were pioneers, cowboys in the wild, wild west. But being the first to ever step foot on another planet with life, even if it was just grass, was a daunting proposition. Across the control room, Jenna, the only other surviving crew member, limped in, carrying a few fire suppression packs. She was probably walking on a broken ankle, but didn't complain. Bad news? Jenna asked as she neared. Adira met her gray eyes with her own. Could be worse. Well, I've got some piss for your lemonade, Jenna said. There's a fire in crew quarters. 
Adira held back an exasperated sigh. She was trying not to think of her dead crew, people that were like family to her, or the disaster of a mission they had died for. A fire seemed like shit-flavored icing on a giant turd cake. Still, she knew it was imperative to set an example, to stay positive, focused, and motivated. For Adam and Jenna, she was going to make sure everyone left survived this. Jenna held one of the fire suppression packs out to her, and Adira took it. Adam began to stand from his chair, but she placed a hand on his shoulder. No, you stay here. See if you can at least restore communication faculties. Adam gave a curt nod and sat back down at the kiosk. I might have to manually repair things, but I'll see if I can do something from here first. Good, Adira said, and looped her arms into the FSP to wear it like a backpack. She turned to face Jenna and motioned for her to lead the way. The corridor was metal and lined with rows of emergency LED lighting on the floors, ceilings, and sides. The fact that the crew would probably be weightless in space with no up had been taken into account when the ship was designed. Even the emergency lighting reflected this thought pattern. Every little detail was accounted for, except the need to make the lighting bright enough to actually see by. They were surrounded by stripes of glowing blue, and yet the corridor was still extremely dark. It made Adira feel as though she were walking through a carnival house. She expected the lights to begin twisting like a vortex tunnel, or the floor to become uneven and wobbly. As though to remind her of the severity of the situation, every few feet or so, they'd come across dark spots on the lights. And she knew it was blood on the walls and floor. They'd already moved the bodies and bagged them, according to protocol. The corridor had never seemed so long as it did now, and to take her mind off it, Adira focused on the shadow just ahead of her. That was Jenna. When the glow of fire seeped around a corner up ahead, she was almost happy to see it. The corridor to the right ended abruptly in mangled metal. Adira couldn't smell much smoke, but she could see flames through the gaps in the twisted steel and sparking cables. Jenna peeked between pieces of the crumbled spacecraft. Shit, she said. The wreckage shifted. We'll have to get at it from the outside before the fire jumps to the rest of the ship. How Adira loved that woman's determination. She was as smart as a whip and never one to back down from a challenge. If something needed to be done, Jenna got it done, no matter how hard it seemed. Adira nodded. Let's do it then. They jogged the corridor back to the control room, Jenna limping deeply with every step. There they saw Adam had opened a console and was shining a flashlight at a mass of wires. Any luck? he asked without looking up. We used all our luck when we survived the crash, Adira said, half-joking, and held out her hand to help Adam off the floor. He stopped what he was doing and took her hand. As she hoisted him to his feet, Jenna sat in a nearby chair, propping her injured leg out to the side. We're going outside, she said, wincing slightly. That's a bad idea, Adam shook his head. If we do that, we risk exposing ourselves, not to mention the fact that we'll be further contaminating the environment. Jenna pointed at a gaping hole in the wall near the now useless airlock. It gave a view of a purplish sky outside that was otherwise similar to Earth's. We're already exposed, Adam. We're exposed and we've already contaminated this planet. The more we traipse around, the more we touch and poke and prod, the more we shed our own microbes. We have no clue how it will react in this environment. It could completely obliterate what already lives here. There's nothing but grass, Jenna threw up her hands in frustration. This planet is sterile. Adam raised his voice a bit. It's not possible for grass to have evolved here and live completely by itself. There has to be other life. Whoa, interjected Adira, sensing the pressure of the situation was taking its toll. Let's just calm down. She looked at Jenna. The longer we're here out of stasis, the more we contaminate the environment. Jenna nodded. The damage is done, and I don't want to lose another decade trapped in a pod while everything we've worked for goes down the shitter. 
I don't want to lose another ten years either, Adam said, his tone betraying his worry. Jenna looked at him. For a few seconds he appeared to be struggling with his thoughts, and then he threw her a conciliatory nod. Adira rubbed her face with one hand and wished she hadn't stubbed out that cigarette. She knew the protocol was stasis in an emergency like this. They could survive in it long enough for another mission to reach them. If they did that, though, it wouldn't just be another ten years of their lives. It was twenty. Twenty total. Ten to get to Ningal and ten to wait for rescue, rotting away in a stasis pod with nothing to show for their lost time but a contaminated environment and a mission gone horribly wrong. Twenty years and four dead crew members. I don't want to go back in stasis either, she said. There was silence for a moment, and then, still wearing her FSP, Adira turned to cross the control room. Jenna and Adam shared a glance. After a few seconds, he offered a hand to help her stand. She accepted, and they followed Adira, ignoring the alarms and flashing screens all around them. On the other side of the room, Adira grasped the lever that opened the hatch and pushed it down. Her stomach sank with the familiar hiss of the chamber inside depressurizing. Prior testing had indicated the air was hospitable to human life, but she still couldn't help but worry, even if they had already been exposed. She stepped into the chamber, her heart beating so hard she thought it might crack her ribs. With a deep breath, she opened the outside door, releasing the triple seals that had once held back the emptiness of space. The crew stepped into warm, humid air. It smelled horrible, like a mix between death and what Adira assumed a hippo's breath would be like. She glanced at Jenna and Adam. They both had the same expression, faces pinched with disgust. This planet smells like shit, Adam said, eloquent as usual. Adira shook her head in mild annoyance and then ignored him to take in her surroundings. Despite their circumstances, the monumental occasion was not lost on her. They were the first humans to ever step foot on this planet. This isn't how she imagined it happening. The terrain was flat, and she had a clear view to the horizon in every direction, save for where the ship rose behind her. Adira knew that except for the sparse lakes that dotted Ningal's surface and a single mountain range in the Western Hemisphere, this was all there was. Rocky ground overgrown with waist-high blue grass. The grass bent gracefully in a slight breeze, undulating away from her like an ocean ripple. Smoke from the burning section of the ship slipped through the air, a welcome smell that helped blot out the stink that rose around them. She scratched her arm, giving it a dig with her closely trimmed nails, and sneezed. Bless you, Adam said and stepped closer. He was almost as tall as she was, lacking about an inch. What do you think? he asked. I think I'll hang back while the two of you deal with the problem, Jenna said from behind them. She pushed her way out the door and tossed Adam her FSP, then pointed at the injured leg she was heavily favoring. A touch of sweat stood out on her brow. It could be from the oppressive humidity, but Adira bet she was in a good amount of pain. Go get yourself some pain relief. That's an order. Yes, Captain. Jenna turned and limped back through the open airlock without so much as a look back. Adira knew the pain must be intense if she was missing this milestone. She turned to face Adam. Shall we? Indeed. They skirted the ship, sticking close enough to touch it, and headed toward the pillar of smoke. Adira scratched her arm again, harder, nearly drawing blood, and hissed in annoyance. It was like a mosquito bite. It hurt to scratch, but it felt so damn good. As she scratched, Adira noticed her arm was forming a blotchy red rash. She sneezed again and her eyes began to water. She never would have thought her hay fever and the hives that came with it were going to be a problem when she signed up for the space program. Then again, she never thought she'd be walking on a planet that was essentially one big meadow. 
She adjusted the FSP on her back and continued to follow Adam. The long blades of grass that rose from the soil and brushed against her hands were soft, almost silky, and not at all what she expected them to be like. They were a deep blue, almost purple, and although the plant stunk, it was beautiful, with its unending fields and purple skies. She couldn't wait to take video, do tests, and really examine it. First, though, this fire and their ship had to be dealt with. They rounded a corner and immediately saw the blaze. It wasn't out of control, not yet, anyway, but it could be soon. Adam turned to her, chewing his lip. I think we can take it. It looked raw. You okay? she asked, pointing at his lip. Yeah, he rubbed it. Just nerves. Adira nodded and looked past him, staring into the flames. I bet that feels good, she thought. No, what? She pushed the odd thought away. Adam turned his back on her, and they moved closer to the fire. The grass around them parted easily, swishing as they walked. Closer to the ship, she saw it was scorched, crisp and black. Adira counted her blessings. A fire here might burn the entire damn planet in dry season, if there was a dry season. She moved her hand to scratch her arm again, but stopped herself. Why was she scratching? She wasn't really that itchy, but it felt so good. So good. Just one more, one more deep scratch. She raked her nails harshly over her arm, opening thin red wounds, and inhaled sharply. It was good. Very good. She scratched again, slowly clawing the same angry lines she had just made, digging as deeply as she could. She wanted more. Maybe glass or a knife would help. No. The fire... Adira shook her head. She felt like she was half-dreaming. She shoved both hands deep into her pockets and clenched her fists. Adam, she called, her voice catching in her throat. He turned back, guilt and fear hiding behind his brown eyes, and wiped at his mouth, smearing scarlet across his clean-shaven cheek. Deep teeth marks in his lower lip poured blood down his chin. You're bleeding. Adira nearly whispered. So are you, he said, a slight tremble in his voice. Over Adam's shoulder, the fire called to her as though she were a moth. She could nearly feel the pleasure of the flames searing her skin, causing it to bubble and char. No! She pulled her bald fists from her pockets and grabbed Adam's hand. They turned back toward the way they came. She fought the urge to tear at her skin or to slide into the fire head first and bathe in its glorious heat. It would feel so good, so gratifying. She ran, pulling Adam behind her, a deep fear awakening inside her. He must have felt it too because he didn't resist. As they rounded the side of the ship back toward the open airlock, she bumped her scratched arm against the hull and released Adam's hand. The ache it caused reminded her of how much she wanted to scrape her nails along her arm, sinking them down to the bone. The thought alone was enough to stop her in her tracks, deflecting her fear as she fought back a wave of desire. With clenched fists, she powered on, digging her nails into her skin. Her strained muscles and bloody palms screamed in ecstasy. The need inside her was building like a lust for a lover. She had never felt anything so intense in her life. Blindly, she stumbled through the grass and sneezed. Giddy on endorphins, she reached for her wounded arm before deciding at the last minute that gouging out her eye would feel so much better. The idea of burrowing her fingers into her socket and grasping the rubbery orb there, then pulling it and twisting, feeling the optic nerves scream and stretch and break free. It was just too delicious to resist. 
Her eyes burned in the most wonderful way as she opened them wide. She brought her fingers closer, and just before she plunged them deep into her skull, she was abruptly overtaken by a burst of sneezes. Her body recoiled, involuntary, and she covered her mouth with her arm, waiting for the fit to pass. When it was done, she moved her arm away and noticed the folds and wrinkles of her white flight suit were beginning to look purple. Inspecting closer, she saw the fabric was accumulating a super fine dust, pollen. She looked up at the purple sky again, and her mind cleared just enough to understand. The air was filled with pollen. Adira sneezed again. They had to get inside. Adam, she yelled, trying to keep her focus. She turned to see he was kneeling, hunched over in the grass several paces back. Adira blinked back tears from her burning eyes and fought the wave of pleasure that rode in on her allergies. Adam, she shouted again, and he looked up. She gasped. Adam had used the holes he chewed through his lip to gain purchase on his face and pull it away like a paper mask. It hung in limp strips around his neck, and he moaned in delight as he peeled the skin further still, slowly flaying himself. Look at what he's doing. It's amazing. No, awful. It's awful. Adira stepped back, the horror of what she was witnessing momentarily overriding an intense jealousy she felt toward him. Her stomach knotted again, and she fought the need to vomit as she turned back to the airlock and ran as fast as she could. She knew every step threw more pollen into the air around her, and with every step she found it harder and harder to concentrate on anything but harming herself. She chanted first in her head and then out loud, Just until I get inside, just wait until I get inside. It seemed like the airlock was miles away although it wasn't more than twenty feet. When she reached it, she dove inside, secretly praying she would injure herself as she passed through the door. No such luck. The disappointment was almost crushing. Just until I close the door, just until I close the door, Adira crawled to the hatch and closed it to the outside, knowing it was futile because of the large holes ripped in the hull. She stood and leaned against the wall, breathing hard, trying to catch her breath. Breathe, 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 she thought, and thumped the back of her head against the wall, rhythmically. Zing? She thumped it again, a little harder this time, and felt weak in the knees with pleasure. Titillated, she thwacked her head hard enough to see stars. Adira? It was Jenna. Her blood suddenly boiling with anger, Adira opened her eyes. She'd waited so long, so long, all the way back to the ship's entrance, and Adam, that greedy bastard, was probably already stripping muscle from bone. Why couldn't she just have one moment, one damn minute to... No, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Adira fought off the salacious haze and looked at Jenna. Jenna stared back at her. Where's Adam? she asked. Adira swallowed, fighting back yet another sneeze. He was right, she replied. We're in a heap of trouble. What? Jenna asked, confused. Adira's arm ached with eagerness, begging to be torn into, and her head throbbed, with the incessant need of an interrupted love-making session. What's wrong? What happened to your arm? Jenna's voice drifted along the waves of desire, nearly drowning. Adira closed her eyes and slammed her head back again, this time with a blow so hard she couldn't move for a moment after. A moan of elation escaped her lips. She nearly snarled as she felt Jenna's hand on her shoulder. What are you doing? Jenna's voice sliced through the bliss. Adira opened her eyes. Her vision doubled for a second before she was able to focus. She looked into Jenna's concerned eyes, 
They were painted with the dull sheen of powerful pain meds. That's it. Adira tried to focus. We have to get back to the infirmary. She pushed by Jenna and began running. Every moment that passed, a horrible, insatiable need ate away more of her mind. She pounded the floor with her feet, only one thought keeping her from ruination. Pain meds, pain meds, pain meds. By the time she reached the infirmary door and wrenched it open, the chant had dissolved into just one word. Pain. 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 And even Jenna's pleas from behind did nothing to slow her. Adira searched frantically through already disordered shelves. The crash had thrown everything around. Gauze and antibiotics and tape and creams and potions. And a scalpel. She stopped. Tears began to leak down her face. Tears of joy. For the world suddenly made sense. She'd felt so empty before. A sucking need in the depths of her soul had disemboweled her and left her nothing but a husk of want. But this, this lovely, polished surgical instrument would finally be her salvation. No! Jenna slapped the scalpel from Adira's hand. It hit the floor and rolled away. Adira's desperate longing snapped back on her like a rubber band, and she lashed out, cold-cocking her co-worker with a punch that would have made any boxer proud. Jenna twisted on her feet, then fell backward, landing with a thud. Adira dove for the scalpel, and as she did, a small part of her mind noticed a vial just under the counter. Stretching the very last thread of will she had left, she lifted it with one hand and the scalpel with the other. Morphine. The letters on the label swam before her eyes. In the back of her mind, the mantra she hadn't quite let go of resurfaced. Pain. 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 Adira dropped the vial and gripped the scalpel handle. It felt so real, so hard, and she wanted it more than she had wanted anything in her life. Powerless against a carnality that dissolved her mind, she placed the scalpel to her tongue and sliced, crying out with euphoria. Her tongue split, filling her mouth with dark red blood. It spilled down her front as she drew the blade past her teeth, down her bottom lip and chin, and then continued with her throat. Satisfied gasps whistled through her windpipe as she opened it with the small triangular blade. Little by little, she would fillet herself alive and love every minute of it. That was M.F. Wall's Purple Haze, as read by Dr. Amy H. Sturgis. Amy H. Sturgis holds a Ph.D. in intellectual history from Vanderbilt University and specializes in both science fiction and indigenous American studies. She is regular staff with the Starship Sofa podcast, editor-in-chief of Hocus Pocus Comics, and faculty at Lenore Rhine University. She lives with her husband in Kentucky. Thank you, Amy. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. 
Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.